0: Well, thank you so much for reading the Bible so well. Thank you for wonderful music. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we like to joke around as a staff team. I'm probably not going to be giving away any trade secrets when I say that, but one of my principles is that working in ministry should be fun. I came across someone recently who thought that the word fun should be banned from Christian ministry. I don't agree with that. I'm trying to put the fun back into fundamentalism. If God is good, and if we love each other, then that should be good, and at times, even yes, fun. One friend of mine, when he was CEO of a major Christian ministry, decided at the annual board meeting to break out cigars each year, just to keep them on their toes, like. And so we have our jokes on our staff team. One of our pastors is of Italian origin, and his first name is Todd, so we like to joke that he is the Todd father. I've developed little fond nicknames for most of the staff i work worked with over the years in various places and countries, not all of them but many of them. One of the more rambunctious people I've worked with I think of as Bruce Willis out of the Die Hard movies. You get the idea. Well, one of the on-running little things that makes us smile is the recent spate of books with some version of radical in the title. How to be even more radical than you've ever been before. Not just crazy, but you know, like completely and utterly crazy. You thought that was radical? Have we got radical for you? You've heard of radical, now there is extreme. All that to say, I'm sure I'm going to be teased for giving the title for this sermon as radical. And it's worth taking a moment to define what I mean. The word radical literally means from the root, it means going back to the source, the beginning, the actual root of a plant. And I chose the word radical for this sermon because the passage we're looking at this weekend is telling us that the way to be holy, to be Christ-like, is to get to the root of sin and dig it out It's being radical in the literal sense of going to the root and finding out the origin and the reason why we do something and then addressing it there rather than just the superficial list of do's and don'ts that make up so much of those guilt-inducing sermons on wholeness. You know, don't dance, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. We need to get some better, more sophisticated perspective on it, and that means getting to the root of it, not like the old joke of those fundamentalists who are against fornication in case it might lead to dancing, if you see what I mean. (laughs) So the message this weekend is the duty, technique, and security of the radically holy life. Duty, technique, and security of the radically holy life. You'll notice that I'm putting the main proposition of the sermon as a statement, not as an instruction. It's in the indicative, not in the imperative. Because these verses here in the Bible are a statement too and are in the indicative too. And it's one of the ways that Paul guards against legalism, but at the same time puts some gunpowder behind his definition here. In other words, this is a key message, I believe, for us as a church about holiness. One of the great elderly saints in our church some years ago took me down to her seat so she could whisper in my ear and she said, Pastor, I'm praying that you would preach on holiness. Well, I preach on that a lot in various ways, but this passage is one of the key passages in the whole Bible about holiness. And it gives us the duty, technique, and security of the radically holy life. First, the duty, second, the technique. Third, the security. First, the duty. So Paul says at the start of verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. So Paul starts his teaching on holiness by telling us that it is an obligation or that it is something to which we are debtors. The word means it is something that we must do. We are obliged. It is our duty. Now, I know full well this is not a common idea in Christian circles. In fact, you might be interested to discover, there's a lot of teaching about holiness that actually tells us preachers to downplay the whole idea of duty. It will put them off, they say. Don't tell them about duty, they say. No one wants to hear about that. Tell them about the joy of holiness and all you know, how pleasurable it is, etc. Well, holiness is joyful and pleasurable, yes, but that's not where Paul begins. He tells us we must be holy. It's our duty as followers of Jesus to grow in Christ's likeness. Now, this is a complete paradigm shift for the contemporary Western world, and so you're probably not going to get all of it in the next couple of minutes or so. But I want us to at least begin on the journey. Basically, we have all been taught, you and I, that the way to live our lives is to look within ourselves, Figure out our passions, identify our abilities, be true to ourselves, follow our dreams, and then we'll be happy. Uh, Because none of us here have lived for over 100 years, well, perhaps a few listening on the radio this morning at our Wheaton North campus at Windsor Park may have done. But other than that, uh, we haven't just been around long enough, most of us, to realize what a weird idea all of that is. It's completely foreign to the Bible's way of looking at life. Most people in most parts of the world today don't get to choose a career. They get to do what dad did if they're lucky. It's even strange uh, historically and around the world to choose your mate. Most times that's selected for you. Now I'm not saying I want that. But what I am saying is that we have this whole thing upside down. We ask, what do I want out of life? Instead we need to ask, what does life want from me? This is the insight that was given to Viktor Frankl in his famous man's search for meaning that uh, he, uh, he wrote after he survived the concentration camps. We will never be happy until we stop asking what do I want to do with my life and start asking what does life want from me. It's the difference between a vocation and a career. Some Christians have careers and that's fine, things they decide to do to make a living, fine. All Christians have a vocation, a calling. We are called to follow Jesus. That's what God wants out of us. It is our duty. This is the why of life, the rationale, the vision. Uh, Paul begins, therefore, brothers, and so he has in view all that has happened to us. We are now in the Christian kingdom. We are now established, fixed by grace in God's family forever. This is who we are. And now this life is asking something of us. And this actually gives meaning to our life. <laughs> it was, uh, Nietzsche who put it like this. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. You need a why. Now when we think of duty, we think of something dire, boring. You know, I have to do it, but I don't want to. Paul is saying, yeah, you have an obligation, a debt, a duty, and yes, you do have to do it. It's a vocation, a calling. It's what not just life but God is asking of you. You say, so why do I have to be holy? Why do you have to be holy? Well, Paul tells us. Because if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Paul is not talking about physical death. He's already indicated that everyone, Christian and non-Christian, unless Jesus returns first, will physically die. But if we do not fulfill this obligation, this duty, then we will die in the fullest sense of die. Paul is talking about damnation, hell, eternal separation from God, death in its fullest biblical sense. Now, um, like Paul... I am a Calvinist, if you see what I mean. But um, I am a biblical Calvinist, and I let my beliefs be shaped by the Bible, not Calvin or even, you know, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pretty good theologian too, I think. And however you put it together theologically, whether you say someone who turns their back on Jesus was never really a Christian in the first place, or you say that they fell away and they once were a Christian, doesn't for this purpose, make any difference. If we do not fulfill the duty of actually following Jesus in holy living, then we will die. And I would not be fulfilling my duty as a preacher of the gospel if I did not warn you. There are some here who are living in ongoing sinful practices who think that it doesn't matter. It does matter. You will die unless you grow in holiness. This is why, as a church, we have a membership process. We want our members to be real Christians. This is why we have a covenant as a church. We want to encourage one another to be holy because it matters. This is why we have a discipline process as a church. We want to call one another to authentic, radical discipleship because it matters. This is why we even have, and God, I pray, not again soon done church discipline and excommunication. This is why baptism and communion are the church ordinances because baptism is the way into the church, communion the fence around the church. It's how the church can say to the world that when we talk about being a Christian, we mean people who are like this and not people who just say they are a Christian but not actually following Jesus. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this, but nor do I want to underemphasize it. So let me finish this section of the sermon with a post that I shared on Facebook this week from a friend that I thought was helpful in that it explained what we are and what we are not talking about here with this duty. It defined the difference between a liberal church, a legalistic church, and a biblical church. A liberal church is a church that says you are welcome and you do not have to change your life. A liberal church. A legalistic church says that you are not welcome unless you do change your life. A biblical church is a church where Jesus says you are welcome here and I will change your life from the inside out. So our message is the duty, technique, and security of the radically holy life. And we have considered first the duty. This is what gives life meaning. We have a divine calling to become more like Christ. It is necessary. It is a duty. Second, the technique now, I hate the word technique in many ways in Christian circles because it sounds so pragmatic that it can ignore the fact that in the end everything is by grace and it's God's work, not our work. On the other hand, Paul is here in this most important section on wholeness actually explaining how to be holy. You know, the Bible is practical as well as spiritual. And we are not to say that most spiritual is to be unpractical. I sometimes suspect God is a lot more down to earth than some of us are, as at least the incarnation seems to prove. Paul's technique then is simply expressed in this sentence. If by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live. I say it is simply expressed, but in reality, again like the last point, there is so much here that I seriously doubt that you will in any way get to the bottom of what Paul was teaching in the next few moments. People have sometimes said to me, you're going too slowly through Romans. Well, if you are ever tempted to think I am, all you need to know is that this one part of this one verse has been the subject of thousands of pages, literally thousands, in all the best writings on holiness. The great classic on this is John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. So what is the technique? First, it is active. There is no way of doing enough hermeneutical gymnastics to get around the fact the Paul here is saying that we have to actively take responsibility for our own holiness. This is not someone else's job. It's your job. You cannot blame your parents, your church, your small group, your pastors, your wife. It's your job. You have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. No one else, you. So the whole teaching that wholeness comes about through letting go and letting God is wrong. This is not what the Bible teaches. We are saved entirely by grace. That has nothing to do with us. The thief on the cross repents and Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise and that's it. He's not baptized. He doesn't do anything. Our salvation is entirely by grace. Once we are Christian, we have God's spirit, now we are to be holy. We have God's power and it requires our active contribution to be holy. We have to get down and do the work. First, it is active. Second, it is radical. Now remember how I defined the word radical at the beginning as getting to the root And so Paul is saying that to defeat some sin in our life, we have to get to the root of it. This is not just stop doing it. I mean, anyone can say that, but it doesn't actually help us stop doing it, does it? The point is we have to get to the reason why we are doing it. That's harder. It takes thought. It takes insight. I have had, over the 25 years I've been in pastoral ministry, hundreds upon hundreds of conversations with people about becoming more like Christ. And I can tell you that in every single one of them, the key to figuring out how the person can make progress is figuring out why they are not making progress. What's the blockage? What's really going on? If you are an elder or a pastor or a missionary Christian leader, you need to understand this. You yourself may well have been brought up in a good home and been well trained and mercifully be free from obvious sins and only likely to be guilty of the far more difficult sin to uproot self-righteousness. When you are dealing with yourself or you are counseling someone else, you need to realize that you cannot offer simplistic solutions. Band-Aid Bible verses, slogans from the Gospel Coalition webpage or whatever. You have to know why. You have to listen. It's like being a detective. It's the same in our own lives. Why? Why am I inclined to do this? What am I really after? Why do I tend to gossip? What is that about? What motivates me to do that? Is it because I am insecure and want someone else's approval? Uh, Perhaps, Uh, but then why? Why do I want someone else's approval? And on and on you go until you get to the root uh, I've used this illustration uh, before, and I hesitate to do it again, because last time I used it, I got lots of gardening tips, but I hate gardening. I, uh, I know, I know, you think all English people love gardens, and that's a good assumption, but I'm a city boy, and I grew up in London. And anyway, we have a garden now, you know, lovely, lovely thing, And I suppose, and... Um, What I have discovered is that you have two options with weeds. One, get some napalm and blast the place. This is tempting, I confess. The trouble is not only do I have a garden, I also have children. So this rules out the napalm. The other option is digging the sucker out by the root. Now, some people try the napalm option. Just throw them out as soon as you discover they are sinners. I mean, sinners, how dare they come around here? What are they thinking, that we worship the person who was friend of sinners or something? I mean, you know. Listen, Martin Luther would say that unless he was accused of being too soft on sin, he didn't think he was preaching the gospel right. Remember that definition. A biblical church is where Jesus welcomes sinners and says, I'll change you from the inside out. And so it's from the inside out, and that means getting to the root. So the technique is active. It's radical, that is to the root, which means asking why until you get why this is happening. And then it is violent, of course, I don't mean violent literally. And Paul does not mean put to death physically. And uh, he does not mean any kind of physical attack on yourself or beating yourself up. Some people here are so guilty about their sins that what you most need this morning is the last point I will get to in a moment about security. But now the third technique is a kind of spiritual violence, putting to death. This does not mean that temptations related to a sin will not come again. This side of glory, we are all sinners, and fighting sin is like playing whack-a-mole. They just keep coming back, and you've just got to keep whacking them again, and that carries on until the day you die and go to be with Jesus in glory. There will be an ongoing fight against sin. But for a particular sin, a particular habit, a particular need to grow in wholeness, requires not only being active, not only radical by the root, figuring out why, but also spiritually violent. You can't have mercy on yourself. Are you tempted by the internet? Give it up. Jesus said it's better to enter life maimed than go to hell whole. He didn't mean literally cut off your hand, but he meant it would feel like it. Unplug. If you cannot surf the Internet without looking at porn, you need to arrange your life so someone else does the email and Internet for you. That's spiritual violence. Gossip. You have certain friends that you're sharing what someone else's issues are as a matter of prayer for concern. Get some new friends. Gossip is cancer in a church. I've always liked Kent Hughes's definition of gossip. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face... Flattery means saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his or her back. (laughs) So if you are in leadership and you have a wife who tends to gossip, spiritual violence would mean not telling her things that she might gossip. That's being loving to your wife or to your husband. Uh, By the way, the worst gossip I ever met was a man. Whatever it is, you have to take responsibility for it. This is not about, oh, there wasn't sufficient accountability at that church. This is your responsibility, not someone else's. You have to be active about it. You have to get to the root of the matter. Why? Why is this an issue? And you have to exercise spiritual violence. Rearrange the circumstances of your life so you avoid the area of temptation. Even if that is painful for you, even if it affects your job. We are talking about heaven or hell. So it is active. It is by the roots. It is spiritual violence to deal with the sin. And also, Paul says, it is by the Spirit. That is, the power for this comes from God. So to fight sin and grow in radical holiness, we need to be conscious about seeking the power of God in our lives. How do we do that? Well, this is why as a church we spend considerable amounts of time in God's Word, because the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. If you want a church to cave in to the pressure of the world, the flesh, and the devil, cut back on Bible teaching. What you're doing is you're sending God's people into battle without the one piece of spiritual weapon that they have been given the word of God. I think we're on track here as a church, but I think we also need to grow in it. I've become increasingly aware that not as many of us are reading the Bible each day as I thought. Devotionals are popular. Some of you know that uh, I've written some books, and I I know for a fact that the biggest market, uh, one of the biggest markets in Christian publishing right now, uh, is devotionals. So much of that is complete fluff. Um, Let me put it like this reading Jesus' calling is not reading your Bible. I've never read Jesus Calling. I have no beef with it. Um, But it's uh, not the same as reading your Bible. Jesus calls us through the Bible. Uh, We're going to address this as a staff team in the new year. And we're going to put together a plan for the whole church to read the Bible in a year starting January. But in the meantime... Here's how you do it. Start with a New Testament book. Don't pick chronicles. <laughs> All scripture is God breathes and is useful, it is true, but some of it is harder to chew than other bits. Start, say, with Ephesians or Philippians or Philippians, have you said in this part of the world. Um, set aside on your calendar 10 minutes. Make it every single day. Ten minutes a day, every day, is much better than one hour once a month, maybe. It's like eating. It's better to eat every day than feast once a week. Read the sections of the Bible that is marked off in your Bible as one section. It's an easy way to do it. Ask yourself as you read, what does it say? What does it mean? And then only after you've asked those first two questions, then ask, what does it mean For me, identify from God's word, therefore, God's message for you today. You're going to find that God speaks to you. And it will be actually what God is saying. Some people find reading harder than others. I get that. Some people find discerning what the Bible is saying harder than others. I get that too. But pray that God would speak before you read. Read asking, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for me? And then, having found what God is saying today, pray that in. Ask God to help you love him more, or love your neighbor more, or repent of this sin, or be more generous, or tell your colleague about Jesus, whatever it is. You are now following God's agenda. Not the agenda of Huffington Post, The Economist, CNN, Fox News, or whatever Christian blog you like to read. Stop listening to humans. Start listening to the Bible. The technique then is active, it is by the roots, asking why. It is spiritual violence, cutting out areas of temptation, however painful that might be. And it is by the Spirit, which means you need the power of God daily in you through God's Word, the sword of the Spirit. And so we are considering this weekend this message from God's Word, the duty, technique and security of the radically holy life. First, we have considered the duty. This is not optional for the Christian. We must grow in holiness; Otherwise, we're not really Christians. It is necessary. Second, the technique. Not only is it necessary, it's also possible. And now third, the security. And so if you get into the literature on Romans, which is voluminous, you'll soon find that one of the perennial discussions is exactly how you structure, which part of Romans, where you put the divisions, and all the rest. I'm only mentioning this here because by also preaching on verse 14, I'm making a deliberate interpretive decision, and I want you to see that because it has massive implications for how to be holy. So Paul gets into this tough love mode in verses 12 and 13, and then he transitions to this lovey-dovey kind of thing about being sons of God and then later calling God Abba Father or Daddy and all that. What's the connection? I think they are intimately connected and seeing it makes a huge difference for how to be holy. This is not a technique, but it is the underlying security. So Paul is not just saying, you don't have to worry so much, actually you are secure after all. What he's saying is the deliberate, active, energetic, working at wholeness comes out of a sense of what the psychologists call secure attachment. So when he says, led by the Spirit, he doesn't mean inner promptings to buy a Starbucks latte rather than a green tea. He doesn't mean guidance about, you know, whether to be a lawyer or a dentist or which is the right decision in that meeting. We sometimes talk about being led by the Spirit like that, but Paul doesn't mean that sort of thing at all here. What he means is that the Spirit is the active agent behind all of this. It's really connected again to this idea of wholeness being by the Spirit. There's a power at work in the Christian. We need to tap into that power through the word of God. Being led by the Spirit is the same as saying we're in God's kingdom, under God's rule. We are governed by the Spirit. Jesus is our Lord. The Spirit is our boss. He is our leader. We have this power at work in us now. That's all Paul was saying here about being led by the Spirit. And then he says, here comes the secure attachment idea, those who are led by the Spirit or ruled by the Spirit or in whom there is this active governing agency of the Spirit, those people are also sons of God. And what does he mean by that? Well, first, he includes women in it. Paul does not mean sons of God as in not daughters of God. He is using this term including both genders, and he uses the term sons for a particular reason. There are two reference points. The first is the Old Testament, where God's people were the sons of God. So Paul is saying that these people who fight against sin and for wholeness are the people of God. They are in the covenant with God. They are God's beloved. But also, what's more, he means specifically that, what is true about Jesus and his relationship with God for us in Christ is also true about us. So, Romans 8, verse 2, the Son is Jesus. Romans 8, verse 29, the Son is again Jesus. And what's more, when in verse 15 he talks about Christians praying, saying, Abba, Father, what he's referencing is Jesus' special particular unique mode of praying to God in Aramaic as Daddy, Abba, Papa, Father, So Paul is saying that those who fight against sin and for holiness are the people of God, and so beloved by God and secure, therefore. But even more, he is saying, that what is true of Jesus, the Son of God, now because we are in Christ, we have the same security with God. We also can pray to God as our Abba Father. This is huge. People sometimes ask me whether preaching on smaller sections of the Bible is harder than preaching on larger sections of the Bible. Well, I've done both, and when we do our Christmas series, I'll speak on larger sections then. But one thing it does mean is you have to know your Bible better to preach on smaller sections. You have to understand what John Stock called the inner logic of the Bible. That's really helpful here. We are sons of In the Son, we pray to God, Abba, Father, as Jesus prayed to God, Abba, Father. We are secure. Think of what God said to Jesus when he was baptized. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If you believe in Christ, the same is now true of you. In Christ... You are his son, whom he loves, and with you he is well pleased. In other words, you are secure. You need that to take risks for God. You need that to be faithful to God when the storm comes. You need that to fight for wholeness, to get up again and figure out again, why did I do that? to take the risk of cutting out some activity or area of temptation in your life which other people might not even understand and call you a bit extreme or radical for doing it. You need the security to be active in the fight for holiness. Let me put it like this. God believes in you. (laughs) Now, Usually preachers tell us that the other way around, believe in God, but the reverse is also true, you know. Grace comes first. In Christ you are beloved And he is well pleased with you. And so, the duty, technique, and security of the truly radical life holiness is necessary, and it is possible. Now, this is quite the different message to what most people tell us about how to change. I was listening to the radio show This American Life the other week, and uh, they had a show that they called Transformers from the kids' TV series, and it was all about how people change. Can people change? What makes them change? In Christ, change is possible, change for the better. But our society has a theory about change for the better. It tells us the way to make people do well in life is by positive reinforcement. This is what our children are being taught and what many of you were taught if you're under 30. It's not how I was taught. The way I was trained was the job of the teacher was to point out with maximum rigor exactly what I got wrong. How else was I going to learn? You know. But that's not true now. This idea of positive reinforcement has a lineage to it goes back to a man called Nathaniel Brandon who popularized self-esteem with six pillars of self-esteem. And for years and years, it was assumed by all the educators that if people felt good about themselves, they would do better and be less likely to be dysfunctional. Until a couple of years ago, someone actually did some research on it. A man called Roy Baumeister set out to find evidence that self-esteem worked. He was a supporter of the movement, a fan. But what he actually discovered was the very reverse. He found that actually criminals far from having low low self-esteem tended to have very high self-esteem and the elite performers in society tended not to think much of themselves because they are always trying to get better self-esteem is not going to help you be holy It's going to make you think you don't need to be holy. But you do. You must. Death or life is the result, depending on whether you put into practice the techniques of holiness here in this part of the Bible. This is serious. It matters. I must warn you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But while the self esteem movement is mistaken, what we have instead is God's esteem. What we have is love. What we have is security, secure attachment. The same high performers tend to have a deep, in a sense that they are secure and so they can be highly critical of their performance because it doesn't affect their basic identity or ego you need that too to be holy you need to know son or daughter that you are sons of the living god that you are in Christ loved And in him, God says, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter your rest. And in the meantime, as the current Archbishop of Canterbury puts it, you have to attack the day, or the day will attack you. By the Spirit, with the power of God, Because God calls you, and you must, put to death actively, to the root, with spiritual violence, sin. And strive with all the might that God gives you through His Word, the sword of the Spirit, to be more and more increasingly like Christ. Let us pray. Lord, some of us do not have that power to be holy. Would you now, by your Spirit, give us your Spirit for the first time? Some of us, Lord, need to make the most of the Spirit you've given us. Would you help us today and each day to be active, to embrace the life of Christ-likeness that you have called us to. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.